Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I always said I could be released from prison with a million pound in the bank, pay three model girlfriend, a mansion, a Ferrari on the drive, and still offend and still commit crime. I'm Chris Atkins, and I'm a filmmaker who went to prison for tax fraud in 2016. I spent two and a half years in jail, and have since written about it in my book, A Bit of a Stretch. I made good friends inside, and recorded some of their stories for the first season of this podcast. Sadly, a lot of them have now gone back to prison, some of them several times. And so I've written another book, Time after time, asking why so many ex-prisoners reoffend. It follows a colourful cast of criminals who just can't stay out of prison, and I'm going to dip into some of their stories for the second season of this podcast. This fifth episode is about my friend Mark Conway, who was one of the heroes who tackled the terrorist Usman Khan on London Bridge in 2019. But before that, he'd been to prison ten times for violent crimes, including armed robbery. When I first met him inside, he said, I've never raped or killed anyone, but I've done pretty much everything else. I'm a South East London boy, born and bred. It's the same old story uh, that you've probably heard before and people are probably going to hear in 30 years' time. Single-parent family, multicultural family, no fathers about for me and my sisters, different dads. Uh, money was really, really tight. Mum worked two jobs. Uh, just to put food on the table. But that kind of meant she wasn't at home a lot. You said at one point you saw Belmarsh Prison being built from yeah. your bedroom. You could literally look across from my bedroom and see Belmarsh Prison. So I see it built from the ground up. When I first went there, I could see the rooftops from the cell of the houses. So when you went into Belmarsh, you could yeah. have seen your old, old home? Yeah, yeah. My father's from Iran, my mum's English. Never met my father, he was never about... My sisters uh, are mixed race, half black, half white, and there were times of high racism. One time we came out of the house, there was a swastika painted on our front door. Uh, I was extremely young, didn't understand. Asked mum, she would say that, oh, someone just done it because they like us or something like that. Come back from school, it's rubbed off, you don't think nothing of it. Another instance would be, uh, we was walking around to the shops, me and my mum, my two sisters, 
and the NF and BNP were pretty predominant. The National Front, sorry, national, NF being the National Front. National Front yeah. and the BNP being the British Nationalist Party was was quite uh, established in them areas. So this is in like the 1980s? This is the 80s, yeah. 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 And there were some skinheads handing out flyers and all that and started abusing my mother, uh, spitting at her, calling her all these names. I was scared, didn't really know what to do. And then a police officer walked around the corner and you automatically feel safe. But then he said to my mum, that's what you get for having a kid with a coon. So my mum said, before that, I actually wanted to be a police officer. I would have a little hat. You know, the plastic hats you used to yeah, get, yeah. a whistle and a, and a plastic truncheon. And she said, after that incident, I went home and chucked it down the chute in the blocks of flats. And she really felt that that's where my problem with authority started. Were there other pivotal moments with some, with some things that happened that push you into a, a sort of a life yeah, of offending? Definitely. I, I was assaulted uh, sexually on, from a guy on the estate where we all used to chill in his house, an older guy, which really shaped the way that us viewed the outside world. Did you go to the police? No, 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 no. You keep stuff like that to yourself. I remember one day my mum sent me to the shop and there was older guys on the estate and I walked down the shop with them. they was just walking the same way and he kind of crept out and jumped out and said, I'd better leave you alone now because he thought I was hanging around with them guys. But what did that show me? Well, as long as I hang around with these guys, I'm safe. Just so happens they was like the criminals. And I started hanging around with these guys, started truancying off school. and Did it give you a feeling of protection, of safeness then? 100%. If we was going to do something, I'd be the first one in. If there was a fight in a pub when he was like 14, I was saying, I'd be the first one in there. I'd never run, I'd never leave my what, Why was that? Because I felt that I needed to do everything to keep these people liking me. You know, because they was my protector. This incident encouraged Mark to hang around the group of older lads on his estate. They offered him protection from his abuser and a much needed sense of belonging but it also led him into acts of petty crime. First ever crime that I had done was nicking hubcaps. <laughs> there was a guy down a brakeyard that would give us five pounds for a set of hubcaps. You know the ones that you used to be able to pop, pop them off? Pop them yeah, off. yeah, yeah. And we would just go out all night, a couple of us, and probably earn 30, 40, 50 quid or something. Was it fun? It was great fun. You know, a young age forged kid that probably didn't have no money to wake up in the morning with in the early 90s with 50 quid in your pocket. Mark's early offending sounds like something out of Only Fools and Horses. Soon he was dodging the train fare into Farringdon, where he'd carry out ingenious raids on city office blocks. We would go down to the office blocks, someone would wait in the toilet, the other one would push the alarm. What, the fire alarm? And then everyone would have to congregate out. And then you'd just go behind them and you'd have a bag and you'd just be putting laptops in there. Probably wallets out of people's jackets. And then obviously you've got a, a, a guy on the estate that would buy all your goods off you. So it's funny because you'd have a guy on the estate that would buy all gold. You'd have a guy on the estate that would buy all electrical goods. You've got to remember, on these types of housing estates, there's a real sense of us and them that kind of bond of poverty and need to survive and to keep yourself safe was like a glue. And it really bonded people together. It really felt like there was this invisible kind of force field around our estate. But from what you're saying, it didn't stop there. It escalated through to more serious crime. Oh, most definitely, because for me, I enjoyed the money. I enjoyed the reputation that came with it. Don't forget, growing up as a boy with no money, 
not really expensive clothes, nothing like that. Probably had a bit of a hygiene problem, I would suggest. Yeah. You know, not really uh, good with the ladies. Mm. So when I could start wearing nice clothes, when I started putting money in my pocket, when I started becoming a lot more popular, it's quite infectious. You become addicted to that way of life and then obviously you have to fund that way of life. And as you get older, you see crimes you were doing at 13, 14, you would see as childish crimes. As 18, 19, never dream about going out and sticking a car stereo. Oh, really? You're, you're above all that? Oh, yeah, that yeah, 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 kind of thing. You know, it's like year one, year two, year three at university. So where do you get to? What was year three and year four? Just high-level crime, armed robberies, drug dealing. My crimes become a lot more violent as I grew older. They involved firearms. They became very much really money-orientated. Rather than needing, just it was more wanting. So armed robbery, what like post offices? Yeah, so post offices were always always a go, especially the ones down in the countryside. But the people in there must have been absolutely terrified when you ran in. What balaclavas, guns waving? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, that's not nice for anyone to have to kind of experience or deal with. But when you commit certain crimes, you become desensitised to that kind of stuff. That wasn't crossing your mind. So. Yes and no. So like this, so this is a thing, right? So at the time, no. But after, I would get that sense of guilt, especially if it involved women. I didn't act the same way as committing robberies as I did when I was in my family home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't scream and shout at my mother. <laughs> and you found it easier to switch between them? Definitely. Work was work. And did you enjoy the work? I loved it. People say there's no good things about crime. That's absolute bollocks. There's money, gives you financial freedom. There's reputation. Part of your identity was it, that's who you saw of as Mark. Yeah. Was this fucking hard I, criminal. I, I loved the idea of being a criminal rather than a guy that got up and went to work every day. And was that an option? Like if the crime for some reason had to stop, because you were, from what you said, you were a smart kid, you had qualifications, you could have gone and done a nine to five. 100%. But I don't think what I was searching for at that moment in time, that would have fulfilled it. But I'll do it now. <laughs> so you were getting caught? Of course I did. I've been to prison 10 times, Chris. I was a shit criminal. You hear a lot of podcasts of people going on there and saying how much of a gangster and, and that they were. I was far from that. I was, I was more of a prankster than a gangster. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have a genre of crime. I was a jack of all trades. And you know when you're a jack of all trades, you shit at all of them, right? So that was me. Mark was a repeat offender throughout his teens and received convictions for theft, drugs and violence. He cycled in and out of Feltham Young Offenders Prison, which did nothing to rehabilitate him and only increased the seriousness of his crimes. When you hear about this revolving door, that was me. I think I went felt them eight times between the age of 14 and 21. That's incredible. I feel like in, uh, in, uh. So you spent more time in prison than out? Most definitely. If we're talking about primary and secondary homes, <laughs> Felton was the, my home. Was your primary home? It was home? my primary home. I was there more times in the late 90s, say from 94 to 2001, than I was at home. One Christmas outside, I think it was two birthdays in all that time. I look back now and I hated it. But at the time, you just become so institutionalised. And how I knew I was institutionalised is when I would go back in, you switched on to that mode. 
you're already hustling for tobacco if you haven't got any for weed. You're already you're already on the on the hustle. Straight into prison Straight mode. Straight into prison mode. You just accept it. Yeah, you, you're in it. You're in it. When I was there, I was working with people, get a flat, get all this kind of stuff, get a job, all this kind of... I truly believed at that time, when I was away, that that's what I wanted to do. You'd go straight? 100%. But as soon as that day was coming closer and closer and closer, I thought, fuck it, how am I going to earn money? Because I had people picking me up at the gate with a phone. Let's start a heroin line. Let's start a crack line. At the gate of the prison? Yeah, of course, my pals. So you'd be reoffending what, within hours of being released? Yeah, sometimes within minutes, like... I've just, got, I've just got out with £46. I'm not going to buy my deodorant. <laughs> Without thinking, this could just send me right back inside. £46 you used to get released with in them days. I can't spend £10 on toilet trees. It's a lot easier to nick from super drugs than to... Then repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Exactly, back in, right? Yeah. I just thought that was life for people who grew up in the way that I kind of grew up. It was normalised. It was accepted. Let's just talk then about your last crime, as it were, because I met you at the end of that sentence. Yeah. From what I understand, it was pretty horrific. Yeah. So there was a few of us drove up to Oxford. Uh, it was a home invasion. We, we, we burgled the house, tied the occupants up uh, and, and stole their antiques. And it was very close and personal, in a sense, real hands-on with the victims. They were... Probably early 50s as well, which I, I didn't feel great about at that time. Uh, and that really made me, I didn't like the way that I was behaving. I didn't like that. It didn't make me feel good. You were caught pretty quickly, my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're up for an IPP. Yeah. Mark was given an IPP sentence, which I've talked about before in this podcast. Offenders would be imprisoned indefinitely with a minimum guaranteed term, after which they had to convince the parole board that they were safe enough to be released. These sentences were abolished in 2012 for being manifestly unjust, as people got trapped in the system for years longer than their original tariff. Several thousand IPP prisoners remain incarcerated to this day. So when you were given your IPP, did you think... Holy shit, I'm in trouble. Oh, I thought I was fucked. It dawned on us that. Oh, mate. It I'm could be forever. It could be forever. And so what? You thought, I've got to do things to look good at my parole hearing. That's exactly what it is. Mark could only ever get out if he could show he'd lowered his risk of reoffending. He soon heard about HMP Grendon, a special therapeutic prison that claimed to rehabilitate the most violent prisoners in the system. I thought... Oh, that's where I'm going to go then. Got to be there two years max, tick the boxes, and off you go. So you didn't see it as, as a way where you'd go and have this whole personal epiphany and change and grow. You just saw it as a way of getting out. 100%. Like, in yeah. 2010, 2011, my only thought was, how the fuck am I going to get out of this sentence? And Grendon looked like it could give you and the key. And it looked like it's that because if you had that box tick, so, you know, filled in the application, I was there three months later. You get off the van there and an officer comes to you and shakes your hand and calls you by your first name. Like, it's fucking unreal because I thought, hold on, if I'm going to shake this officer's hand, am I going to be dropped? Furthermore, I don't want to shake an officer's hand. Don't want you calling me by my first name. I don't, like, don't humanise me like that. It's us and them, us and them, us and them, us and them. So straight away it was challenging that, that model? Straight away you're challenged. 
So HMP Grendon is a, uh, a therapeutic prison. So the whole establishment from the number one governor down to the people serving sentences there are all running off this therapeutic model. Now, if you think that this is how some of the country's worst criminals... I mean, the people there are the worst of the worst in terms well, of what they've done. Well, you, you have sex offenders there. People have killed women, people, serial killers, uh, arm robbers, drug dealers. And just explain the therapeutic community, as in people don't just sit and you know, sweep the yard or do what they do in normal prisons. They oh, no, sit no. and have this very intensive therapy, don't so, they? So on average, 40 people in each community. If you want to go for a job, if you want to do education, if you want to go on a family visit, you have to ask permission of your, of your community members first. And Other go prisoners? To a vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. And go to the vote. The staff are just there to supervise. They very rarely get involved. So you need to ask the other inmates yeah, if yeah, you can yeah, do yeah. all these things. Yeah, And... So that's maybe done on a Monday. So, so almost like what, Dragon's Den, you've got to like pitch them they yeah, get, so, and they vote. So I put my hand up, Mark, yeah, I have a back in. I'd like to go for Children's Day. All right, Mark's going for Children's Day and then you get like five minutes of questions from from everyone, why you want to do it, what you're going to benefit from it, is this linked to your offending, is it da 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 This is other cons yeah, yeah, grilling yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds so mad to it's me. It's fucking off the hook, right? So it's like such a head fuck. So you go through it and then you get accepted, then it goes to the staff. Or you, or you might get turned down. Or they could turn you down, yeah. Because if you've been lazy or misbehaving or whatever, then... Most definitely, yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is your small groups, about eight people, where you do that deep therapy work. So you go into a group, I want to use the group today. They tear you apart. How do you mean? Not physically, but verbally. Not verbally, just emotionally, just like you can't so like they're, they're probing you. Yeah, yeah, but it's not lay. It's other business. It's not. It's not. It's not the therapist. It's not. And they, and and I used to get the hump with that. So I used to go, mate, you're in for raping your kids out there. You fucking challenge me. Yeah. Where where, where are you coming from yeah, to yeah, ask yeah, me yeah, about my yeah, crime? Yeah. 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 Like are you fucking taking a piss. And uh, so I nearly got kicked out of there like probably six or seven times in the first year. I was squaring up to people. You do what you do in prison normally. Yeah, thinking like, how dare you challenge me? And I used to be on that vibe of, 
you're a fucking con just like me. You're, you're, you're a prisoner just like me. You don't wear a uniform. Like, you should be helping me get out. Like, how dare you challenge me? It is the worst bit of prison, Grendon, that I've ever, ever Why? done. Because you've got to answer <laughs> to yourself and to other people. And you have to deep, deep. You have to talk about your childhood. You have to talk about the crimes you commit. There's no hiding. So all the stuff we've just talked about now, you were having to talk about this in, in Grendon. Oh, one million percent. And there's the other side of ha- having to listen to how people have murdered their children. How on earth did you cope with that? Badly at first. So my very first session, I remember sitting there and you do a round robin. Hi, my name's Mark. I'm in for this and this and so and this. And the guy next to me, I've done my bit, and the guy next to me was like uh, downloading images of my own children and sex addiction and rape. And then it just moved on and I was like, I thought, did I hear that right? And I stopped the whole meeting. You did? I said, what the fuck? Did you not just hear what he said? And stormed out of the meeting and went into the office and was like, give me my fucking bags. First time I ever cried in prison, by the way, throughout all them years. Give me some bags. I'm fucking, get me out of this nutter. This is a fucking hospital. Get, I can't do it. I can't sit next to people who's saying that they've sexually assaulted their own children and took images and then fucking downloaded them and sold it. I can't, I can't just fucking, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like, I don't want to be in a place where I'm expected to accept that. And I'm on a par with them. It's like, we're all together. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, all together, yeah. right? That's where the hierarchy of offences come in, right? So how did they bat that back? Because you can't have been the first person to... No, it's the, the officer at the time in the office, he was like, you can either take bags now or you can sit down and listen to me for five minutes. I sat down and he was like, do you think I like it? But then I don't like your crime. You went into someone's house and tied them up. And then I don't like that one's crime. But what I do believe in is unless you give people the space to actually work on that and try to give them help, that they're going to get out of prison and do it again. And But that kind of resonated with me in a sense that, don't forget I was a victim of that as well, mm. which was which was difficult. And I thought that type of offending has affected me so much in the way that I've lived my life and led me to this today. Am I going to still allow that type of offending to to ruin a good chance for me? Was there a moment or a phase where you accepted the process? I think it just become over time. Grendon has a way of getting its claws into you without you even wanting it to. So were you breaking down? Were you crying in front of these guys? Most definitely, yeah. These people have walked in your shoes. Like You, yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't blag it because they go, that's bollocks, mate. And they call you out on it. Like I said, Grendon was the first time out of all them years. As a scared 14-year-old boy going into Felton, Grendon was the first time that I, I shed any tears. And I think it was just about, that was a lot about me just releasing all my trauma and all the kind of heartache and all the bollocks that I'd been through in my life. And Grendon was the first place that I was asked if I was okay. Why did you commit crime? <laughs> Rather than, you know, you get nicked, you go to the police station, you're guilty, you're lying. <laughs> you go to court, you're guilty, you're lying. <laughs> no, no, no. Never really did anyone ever sit down for me throughout my whole childhood throughout everything and go, why are you behaving like this? What's going on for you? So you could feel yourself changing? I could feel burdens being lifted. Felt like I had a backpack with all these rocks on and I'm trying to climb Everest, but every time I dealt with an issue, I took a rock out and it got that little bit easier. And I thought I was going to go there for 18 months, so years, tick the box. So I ended up staying five years, right? What tends to happen is you start to recognise things in yourself. I started to see a change in the way that I was thinking, the improvements with my relationships. So it worked on you? 100%. Repeated studies have shown that Grendon's therapeutic approach significantly reduces reoffending. 
Prisoners who stay the course have a reoffending rate of about 20% when they're released, which is under half the national average. Education is a big part of Grendon's success, and Mark started an open university degree in criminology and also joined a programme with Cambridge University called Learning Together. Learning Together was an education programme that brought people from universities. At that time, it was just Cambridge and students from Grendon together. They brought students in from Cambridge yeah, so, into the prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So probably 12 to 14 students came in from Cambridge and then 12 to 14 from Grendon. I thought everyone from Cambridge pulled up in a Bentley, went to... Went to Harrow or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Went to Harrow. Probably wear a cravat. Had yachts and went skiing in the Alps every weekend. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I really thought that. And that really broke down that kind of barriers. That actually, I didn't know anyone that had gone to university by then. But actually, at the end of that first course, it really dawned on me that all the students said that actually they learnt from us. And it was probably one of, alongside Grendon, it was probably one of the most worthwhile thing I've ever done. I met some brilliant people. Well, tell me about some of the people you met. You made some close friends on it. So Jack was this cheeky chappy, always there to help, didn't judge, and went on to become a course facilitator. Did he help you, do you think? Uh, massively. I think that he truly believed that people, one, can change and that people are dealt a shit hand in life. And he really believed in the power of change. And I think he really, really believed how shit the world can be. After five years at Grendon, Mark went up before the parole board. This is an independent panel that decides whether prisoners have lowered their risk of reoffending, And Mark passed with flying colours. He moved to HMP Spring Hill, an open prison next door, which is where we became friends. Mark was soon eligible for day release and he applied for a job at the Prison Reform Trust. This is like an office job, basically. Yeah, it's an office job. Yeah, Had you ever done anything like that before? Never worked properly before in my life. I've never like, had a proper job. Uh, Had you ever been for an interview? No, the only interviews I'm used to are police ones. <laughs> got a job at the PLT and what, what, what was that like? Because obviously a huge shift for you to go into like that actual employment. Yeah. Prison is a very locker room banter kind of environment. It's for the men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite coarse. It's quite coarse and, and to the point. And so that was one thing that I had to pick up on really, really quickly. So I toned down the banter. Mind your P's and Q's. Mind your P's and Q's. Didn't really swear a lot, uh, which was difficult for me. Despite his fruity language, Mark thrived at the Prison Reform Trust and they gave him a permanent job when he was released in 2018. He was a gifted public speaker and was soon asked to speak at events and forums about the criminal justice system. One of these was a conference organised by Learning Together at Fishmongers Hall on London Bridge on the 29th of November, 2019. For November, it was a very sunny day. I remember walking across, meet my mate, and then walking across London Bridge, and it was sunny. So I didn't, I, when you see me in the footage, I ain't got a coat on or nothing, I'm in a T-shirt. Uh, and I just remember, what a lovely day. And then got to Fishmongers and thought, what a lovely building. It was big, it was quite posh. And uh, so we went upstairs, done a meet and greet. And I remember saying, I need to go out for a cigarette. Little did I know was when Karma was getting ready in the toilet at the time. And that's where Jack went into the toilet and was murdered. Uh, I had went outside for a cigarette. Uh, Saskia was outside with a couple of other people who had a cigarette and Saskia went in before us, probably 20 seconds before us, 
And I remember walking up the steps to the hall and they had these big, massive doors, but a doorman had to let you in. You couldn't just walk in and out. Uh, and hearing a massive commotion. And I turned to the guy that was next to me and said, wait till I get in there, I'm going to tell them off. I thought that was fucking about. I thought, being this nice big post building, like they're not behaving. And then looking through and seeing Usman Khan standing there with two knives in his hand and realised that this was a little bit more serious than fucking about, but still didn't think it was a terrorist attack. just thought it had kicked off. I just remember looking through and seeing Saskia lying on the floor. Uh, she'd clearly been stabbed. See, Usman Khan stabbing people. And the guy next to me had actually worked with Usman Khan in Whitemore. He's the head of counterterrorism for Whitemore Prison. He said, this is a terrorist attack. He recognised Khan? Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, that's Usman Khan. He's a convicted terrorist. And I remember thinking, there's only one way out. He's going to come out this front door. So I said to the girl I was with, get on the other side of the road. I managed to get us to the other side of the road. And that's when they come bursting out. Uh, John, Stephen, Darren following him. So this is Usman Khan being chased by some of the other offenders yeah. who were at the conference. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, two life sentence prisoners. And I froze because I saw people that I knew I'd served time in Grendon with John. I see him chasing this guy out of a fire extinguisher. And my mentality is, so if we went out, Chris, and someone attacked you with a knife... I couldn't wake up the next day if I wasn't in that hospital bed next to you. It's a weird kind of mentality that that us and them kind of togetherness. And then I went running across the bridge. And by the time I got there, Steve, Darren and John had kind of got him down on the ground. Like they'd already tackled him. But we just went over and got the knife out of his hand and stamped on him a little bit and stuff like that. You got stuck in? Of course, you do. My biggest fear was getting the knife out of his hands, to be fair. Because at that point, no one knew it was a dummy vest. No, 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 definitely not. So he could have been strapped up with explosives. I thought, well, fuck me. I'm so unfit now. I'd been out of jail a year without no training, eating kebabs and boozing and pinting every weekend. I was in a bit of a bad shape. As you can see on the footage, I've got a bit of, that's where my belly started coming. And I thought, if I get five yards away, I'm dead if he blows that. So you really were kind of, tackling him and trying to save my understanding is one of the knives was taped to his hands yeah so one was freeloaded and one was taped so that the taped one was a little bit harder to get out of him there was people screaming don't hit him don't hit him and all that don't hurt him and I was like fuck that do you know what I mean I was just stepping on him and and trying to get the knives out it was all over so quick by the time I was there it, I was just 20 seconds later the police were there and what happened the police came well they shot him uh and you saw that in front of you? Oh, definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm five yards away. They put two in him. And you know when they say in films, you've been smoked. I get that now because smoke came out of his chest. I remember seeing that, uh, two holes and just smoke coming out of the chest. I mean, it all sounds so heroic. And I think many people wish they would do what you did. And I suspect many wouldn't. But it must have also been quite traumatic for you to witness all that. M- massively. So... For me personally, everyone says, oh, heroic and stuff like that. I think John, Steve and Davin, <laughs> they were the ones that fronted him up, to be fair. Yeah. And, and would I have got involved if I didn't see any of my friends there? Probably not. But because I saw friends being involved, I couldn't think about them being hurt. And for me, the most traumatic part of it was going back into the building. It was like, so the only best way I can explain it is if on a summer's day, you're in a park and you smoked a joint. Like, you know, you get that hazy... Very woozy, very... Very yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nothing seems real. Yeah, it's just that hazy kind of effect. And I remember going back in and 
just the alarm was going off. It was. It felt like time had slowed down. Water was everywhere. Obviously, where John was spanning with the fire extinguisher, and I was working on Saskia, and then looking over, and she was covered up. And I just thought I was just outside speaking to her two fucking minutes ago. And then guilt comes in. People were filming us. The TV crews were there already. People were filming us on their phones. I remember really getting into arguments with people, knocking phones out there around and that, saying, fucking people, my mates have just died there. Usman Khan murdered Mark's friend Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones. They were both in their early 20s. Khan also seriously injured several other people, and would probably have killed even more were it not for the group of ex-offenders who chased him out the building and onto the bridge. A subsequent inquest found serious failings in how the police, probation and the security services had failed to properly monitor Khan after he'd been released from prison for serious terror offences. Did you get any compensation? Was there any sort of benefit to you? So, because we got convictions, we couldn't apply for criminal compensation Someone with criminal convictions isn't allowed to go for criminal compensation. If I was seriously injured as well, so if I was cut up and stabbed up, I still wouldn't have received no money. And that's because of your criminal past? That's because of my criminal past. Even though on London Bridge you stepped up, like you're one of the posse that tackled the terrorists. Most definitely, and and literally... That doesn't count. So, Chris, I would have preferred to have been stabbed then to go through the mental... (laughs) kind of bit afterwards if, if getting stabbed a couple of times meant to take away the kind of mental and emotional kind of damage that came afterwards I would have took that all day long and you still feeling that today yeah, of course like, it stays with me and that's why I didn't take part in the recent Channel 4 documentary and stuff like that and then now is it fair to say you're, this is your life now like campaigning for more progressive prison conditions yeah so I've left the prison reform trust I do a lot of freelancing work now to challenge prison policy and try to make conditions a lot better because I believe that no policy is worth the paper that it's written on unless it has the voices of the people who's going to be governed by that policy running through it. So you, you advocate for better prison conditions? in a Yeah, most definitely, because I also believe that the best way to protect the public is by making sure that people have proper rehabilitation whilst they're in custody. My thought on this is, is I can't imagine what you were like before... Grendon before I met you but from your rap sheet it was pretty shocking but looking at that rap sheet it's like well if this guy can change anyone yeah. can change is how I see Grendon as a as a force for good products of the environment Chris yeah, yeah. Like I keep on pumping on about that because I really truly believe that and I think well, I went to an environment where I was expected to behave in a certain way and given the opportunity and given the space to actually just be me and have a voice This was the first time that I was able to use my voice and just be myself and just get things off my chest. And I think that is so important. So should there be more Grendons? Well, this is is a funny question because Grendon is unique, right? So how many documentaries have you seen on Belmarsh? Oh, God, one a week. I mean, Ross Kemp practically lives there, doesn't he? How many documentaries have you seen on Grendon? None. I'd love to do one. But they, they don't let you in. Why? It doesn't fit the agenda. Lock up and throw away the key, tough prison. The last thing they want to do is show Britain's most dangerous criminals as human beings. Talking about their feelings. Talking about their feelings. Grendon boasts an almost miraculous success rate. Yet its therapeutic approach has never been replicated elsewhere in the prison system. It's worth remembering that nationally, 46% of all prisoners are reconvicted within a year of release. But the rate for Grendon is less than half of this. Critics point to the costs as there are only 200 inmates in Grendon, and it costs more to keep prisoners there than other Category B jails. 
But if it can turn around people like Mark Conway and thousands of others over the years, it seems like money well spent. You can read more about Mark, Grendon and other stories of repeat offenders in my new book, Time After Time, which is out now. This has been a bit of a stretch, the podcast. It was written and produced by me, Chris Atkins. It was edited by Aidan Lyons and the music was by Vincent Watts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.